Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He was able to create this kind of coalition of law enforcement agents and offices to bring together what was really the single biggest wiretap operation, I think, in the United States history. You're talking about millions and millions of intercepted pieces of communication. Guzman, in effect, wiretapped himself. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He had the FBI and the DEA on his tail for years and famously escaped prison twice, once through the shower tray in his cell into a tunnel below. He was elusive and cunning and violent and rich, but the head of the Sinaloa cartel, Joaquim El Chapo Guzman, was eventually brought to heel. And now he spends his days in solitary confinement in the most secure prison in the US. So how did his luck run out? This week, I'm talking to Alan Foyer of the New York Times, whose book El Jefe, The Stalking of Chapo Guzman, gives a fascinating insight into the wiretaps, the secret codes and the technical magic that landed the drug lord in the dock. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So, Alan, he's 62 years of age and he's serving life imprisonment plus in the most secure prison in the US in Colorado. And there seems to be still life in the old dog yet. Uh, Joaquim El Chapo Guzman is currently trying to uh, appeal his sentence, have a retrial in Mexico, and obviously still believes that there's hope and it's not the end of the line. But I think anybody that would read your book would see that uh, where that fighting spirit he has is coming from. And you have taken us behind the scenes of the investigation, right into the heart of all those wiretaps that were used um, and that ultimately led him to the dock in Brooklyn. It's a story that you've told in, in three parts, just pretty much like the theatre it has been. 
you know, you bring us to a place that we haven't, I think, as a reader and, and as anybody who's interested in El Chapo has never been before. Uh, you started there in about 2009 when a tip comes into an FBI office. So can you tell me a little bit about that and, and, and how it all began? The FBI field office in Manhattan got a walk-in a, a tip one day, as you said, in, in 2009. Uh, a guy literally walked in the front door and went up to one of the police officers working in the lobby and said, I have information about Chapo Guzman, the world's biggest drug dealer. And, you know, listen, people walk into the FBI office in Manhattan all the time saying all kinds of crazy things. But for whatever reason, this tipster was credible enough that the cop down in the lobby called upstairs to one of the FBI's, um, the International Drug Squad there. And they heard the guy out. They sent a couple of guy, people, sent a couple of agents down uh, and uh, listened to what he had to say. And the tipster story was, in short, this. I have firsthand knowledge that, um, that uh, El Chapo Guzman has hired uh, a young, savvy IT guy from Colombia and has built for Guzman this incredibly sophisticated, secret, custom-made, encrypted cell phone system. So what, what to do with that information, right? Obviously, it's, it's extremely tantalizing, um, but no one quite believed it. It just seemed like the kind of thing that was this, you know, great story that couldn't possibly be true. Uh, don't forget at that stage, the idea of, of, a, of, of a kind of personal encrypted cell phone network was incredibly far-fetched. I mean, today we kind of hear that. We go, well, of course criminals use encrypted cell phones. They've been doing that for years. But in 2009, that was something very different. It was something very high-tech. It was something sort of outside the bounds of the norm. And anyhow, um, a young rookie agent in the New York office decided to run it down more or less because nobody else wanted to. And it turned out that this guy, whose name is Bob Potash, Robert Potash, had a background as a techie. He had been kicking around in the private sector um, for a long time, working on technological um, you know, devices and, and lasers and robots and stuff like that. And, and he and his partner, who was a more seasoned um, sort of cartel drug organization investigator, they ran this rumor down and they started to get hints that this mythical young IT guy and his mythical secret super duper cell phone system was in fact real. And thus began this sort of incredible surveillance. Uh, well, first of all, it was a, it was a human source investigation into the IT guy, um, a guy who uh, is ultimately now known as Christian Rodriguez, although Rodriguez is not his real last name. Um, the FBI has uh, asked that his real last name never be released for his own security. Um, they tracked this guy, Christian Rodriguez, down. They, they essentially uh, launched a sting operation against him and turned him into a source and used him to infiltrate Chapo's um, encrypted cell phone network. 
So he was basically a 21-year-old, um, you know, one of these sort of internet techie guys who was obviously a bit of a genius when it came to building systems ahead of his time. Um, and he had been lured by the money, which most people are when it comes to the drug world and, and the narcos. And he had been, he had previously developed a system for another gang from Colombia who were linked to Guzman. And he essentially set up what in layman's terms would be a private networking system. So you and I could have a phone call. Nobody could listen in without our codes or check our texts without our codes. We have a code at each end. The, the phone calls, the phone systems, basically, the phones are connected. And without both, you shouldn't be able to, uh, you know, to, to break into the system and to listen in, which was traditionally how... Law enforcement has uh, and has continued to, obviously, but uh, infiltrate these gangs. So that is essentially what what an encrypted system is. Yeah, it's twinning of phones and unbreakable, basically. Yeah, and and one of the special things that that Christian Rodriguez did for Guzman's system and for it, the the prototype system that you had mentioned that he had set up for this Colombian gang called the Cifuentes family. Um, linked for over the course of many years to Guzman was that he had he had created a kind of speed dial system where if you imagine your ordinary office phone network, if I wanted to call you and your your you know direct dial was like one two three, then I could just press one two three into my phone and it would go straight to you because we're all networked on this system. And yes, it was all encoded, it was all enclosed, and it was firewalled at various points so as to prevent. Um, you know, incursions into the system. Um, and, you know, Rodriguez had kind of custom made a few other things. So, so Guzman, over the course of his long career, uh, don't forget by this point, he's kind of mid career, right? But he'd always been obsessed with, um, you know, kind of secret communications and always had the best of the best. He had satellite phones before they were commercially available, he had all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, but he was he was absolutely obsessed um, with these long range cordless phones because at that point he was um, a fugitive from justice. He was living on the run, um, deep in the rugged mountains, uh, you know, of, of Sinaloa, Mexico, the Sierra Madre Mountains. And so, what he likes to do is he liked to have this mobility where he could kind of walk away from his encampment. Into the forest with a with, with a cell phone with a, with a cordless phone that had a range of like one kilometer, you know, and so he insisted that Rodriguez put these. Um, they were called Sanal, I believe, Sanal um, cordless phones on the network. So Rodriguez figured out a way to sort of take what was more or less an analog phone and 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 create a separate server that would link it up to the digital system. It was pretty, pretty ingenious, especially for its time. And of course, what's really interesting here and, and may seem obvious is that a communication system for a drug gang is probably the most important thing that they have next to their transport system. I mean, it is vital for them to be able to keep in touch. They're running essentially a massive corporate organization. Guzman at this time, he had previously escaped from jail and he was eight years on the run at this stage. So this, he's still, he's, you know, by this point, he's, he's 
out of he's he's escaped from prison for you know eight years so he has kind of he kind of rebuilt his business now but he's living in you know on the on the run and he's he's kind of constantly moving between a series of you know six to ten mountain hideouts up in this incredibly um austere challenging environment um in the mountains uh but you're absolutely right about communication systems i mean imagine trying to run a company like amazon uh or fedex without you know sort of distribution managers in New York City being able to talk to receiving managers in London and and truckers and all kinds of people um so it's a it's just a it, it, you can't do it without communications um which is really the lifeblood so they got this young techie on side they signed him up as basically he started working as a mole within Guzman's organization and he began to, uh, well, first of all, he'd made the system so impenetrable that even he couldn't get back into it initially. But he ended up uh, suggesting that they move the server into the Netherlands. Uh, and again, this was was um, leaning on Guzman's paranoia uh, because he always felt he was being listened and tracked and stalked. And they moved the, the server to the Netherlands where he implants a kind of essentially something that they're able to all, all of a sudden start listening in. Yes. Um, the, the Netherlands allowed, uh, the move to the Netherlands allowed Christian Rodriguez to kind of reboot the system without drawing too much attention. Every once in a while, he would, he would tell Guzman, you know what, we need to move the servers here for security reasons. And so when they moved to the Netherlands, working with the FBI, um, he essentially slipped a you know a line of code into this digital network that diverted um, the digital phone into a subsidiary server, and that server kind of made um, copies of them and uh, sent them to the Dutch authorities. The Dutch authorities then uh, sent uh, regular packets of information to the FBI. Now, there must be massive amounts of information coming in and to be deciphered because these people that were working for him and himself were having private conversations, private texts, and also business uh, stuff was being communicated. So they were trying to build up a profile, basically, about who was who within his organization. And ultimately, the aim was how to, you know, how to pin him to a location so they could essentially go in and arrest him with the help of, the Mexican authorities, be they the, the Marines or the, or the police in, in whatever area he's in. Guzman is always protected. He's surrounded by his people who he has employed and funded. And in the mountains, certainly, it seems no one wants to go in there looking for him because it's too dangerous. Yeah, I mean, the idea of sort of storming into the mountains was the least sort of uh, enviable idea from the point of view of both the Mexican military and the uh, American law enforcement. Um, you know, that's why they were constantly trying to track his location. Um, because, you know, Guzman came down from the mountains periodically. Um, beginning in about 2010 or so, 
he really began to get sick of the mountain lifestyle because don't forget it, it, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty rough up there. Just living in like wooden huts, you know, they might have a couple of plasma screen TVs and stuff like that. But, you know, this is a guy who had spent the early part of his career in the lap of luxury. He was making, you know, in his early thirties, he was making $20 million a month and, you know, he had yachts and beach houses, you name it. And now he's kind of like stuck up in the mountains and, and, you know, he's away from the, the, the fancy restaurants he likes. He's away from the, the women that he loves. And so anytime that he sort of left the mountains, you know, that became an opportunity to go after him. Um, and so the communication systems offer the, the FBI two things. One, it offered them um, a kind of real-time or almost real-time glimpse of who was who inside the organization right? and, and, and what kinds of deals the cartel was working on and and who was being assigned to what um, task. But they were also able to generate um, locational information, you know, GPS coordinates, basically, um, off of Guzman's communications. And that ultimately, arguably, became even more important. You know, one sort of allowed the, um, the authorities to make a, a map of the organization. The other allowed them to, to kind of physically make a map of Guzman's location and the locations of uh, people in his inner circle. So what happened then in February of 2012 when he, this is one of the occasions, he did come out of the mountains and as was his his want, it was for women. that It was nearly always women, I think, was it, that drew him out. Some of them, not necessarily his wife, Emma Coronel, although she was, she was around at this point. But what happened then? It was a... Holiday, really, he 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 came out for, and it was seen as an opportunity. Yeah, so um, in February of 2012, um, actually in the kind of winter of 2012, somewhere around December of 2011, uh, he came out of the mountains and 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 moved into a kind of oceanfront villa in Cabo San Lucas, the famous um, resort town on the west coast of Mexico, and. Um, he was there with a very small, small entourage. Uh, it was really his kind of closest private secretary uh, and bodyguard. Um, and, you know, his wife, Emma, would drop by with their twin daughters every once in a while. Um, and then he had a kind of series of mistresses that he cycled through, um, including um, one who was sort of a, you know, like a administrative assistant, uh, for the lack of a better term. And by that point, the FBI um, had switched uh, its means of surveilling Guzman from the encrypted cell phone system to an even more remarkable technique that the IT guy, Christian Rodriguez, helped them develop. Guzman was not only obsessed with communications, he was also incredibly jealous and paranoid. And so he was constantly spying on those closest to him. And he developed a system by which he gave to his wife, his ex-wives, his various mistresses, and several sort of security people and lawyers in his innermost circle, um, a, a, a group of Blackberries that had been infected with a malware, a spyware called FlexiSpy. And FlexiSpy was a very powerful surveillance tool. What it allowed Guzman to do is that once a BlackBerry was infected with this spyware and people started to use it, 
um, Guzman would get a readout of all of the calls they made, all of the texts that they sent, and um, their GPS locations, you know, more or less down to a five-minute interval if he wanted it that closely. And so he became absolutely mesmerized by spying on all these people around him. Of course, what he didn't realize was that by spying on everyone around him, his IT guy was selling that information out the back door and passing it on to the FBI. So Guzman's own paranoia and um, obsession about spying on others allowed the FBI to spy on him. Guzman, in effect, wiretapped himself by, you know, spying on everyone around him. And so, which is just insane. Um, but the FBI was able to um, use both the kind of contextual information from the text that they were peeling off of the uh, FlexiSpy data and the, the GPS locations to track Guzman to the villa in Cabo San Lucas. Um, and it's at that point where some unfortunate interagency conflict on the American side and some corruption on the Mexican side, um, you know, led to what amounted into a, a botched capture operation. Um, while the FBI was collecting all this information, the DEA, the you know, the FBI's sister agency that focuses more on on sort of drug crimes and has jurisdiction over cases in Mexico that are drug related, had developed an informant very close to Guzman, one of these mistresses who had one of these uh, blackberries. And, and, you know, she had given the DEA Guzman's personal information for his personal blackberry. And the DEA was able to track Guzman much like the FBI had. Um, there was all kinds of back and forth fighting between the DEA and the FBI about cooperation and sharing of information. Nonetheless, it was decided that they were going to mount an attempt to capture Guzman at the villa in Cabo. So both the DEA and the FBI had tracked him to the same place. And it was a question of right. who was going to go in and get him and who are they going to partner up with in Mexico it's it's funny how in these cases when when agencies don't talk, it can be very advantageous to the criminal target. Yeah, yeah. Well, don't forget also that America, the America, American law enforcement authorities are not allowed to operate on their own on Mexican soil. It's just you know like legally that's not permitted for obvious reasons. Um, and so it's always a challenge in an environment like Mexico from an American point of view of uh, what law enforcement or military partner you are going to team up with because they have to be in, in charge of operations on the ground. And it can get very dangerous, frankly, if you choose the wrong partner. So there was also a huge debate on the American side about what Mexican partner to use. Um, you know, there are... You know, each agency has traditional partners in Mexico. The FBI likes to work with the Army. The DEA likes to work with the Mexican police. The intelligence services like to work with the Army as well. And there was this huge back and forth, a huge fight. Ultimately, um, they cobbled together with the DEA in the lead a kind of, you know, strike force um, of Mexican authorities that was led by the federal police. Um, uh, the American side... 
Um, the, U the, the, the United States Marshals, which is a kind of unique U.S. law enforcement agency that is in charge of capturing fugitives, amongst other things, they were the lead agency on the ground for the Americans. And it was a team of U.S. Marshals that was had been working in Mexico for about a decade at that point, highly skilled. Um, and this team of Marshals with the federal police went to the location in Cabo San Lucas And unfortunately, um, Guzman made it out the back door of the villa over a retaining wall and down to the beach with literally minutes before the Mexican strike team hit his door. Um, so they were literally on his tail and he just got lucky or, you know, he was obviously tipped off. They were on the way in. Yeah. Well, that's that remains a subject of some debate. So the FBI continued to collect um intercepts from Guzman on this BlackBerry FlexaSpy spyware system, even as he was escaping. So there, 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 there are communications that, that, that we have, that I have copies of, where Guzman is sending texts to his wife saying like, I literally made it out the back door just in time. I just saw them coming. Now he doesn't say anything about, I got tipped off in advance, I knew they were coming. But what seems clear is that the Mexican, that, so, so, so Guzman's villa sat on a cul-de-sac, uh, you know, kind of on a, on a bluff overlooking the ocean uh, there. And there were only a couple of other houses uh, down this cul-de-sac. So when the U.S. Marshals and the Mexican Federal Police showed up, the Mexican strike team went to the wrong house. And the leader of the American you know, team, the U.S. Marshals team, was like, no, amigos, over here, not that house, this house. And they were like, okay, great, this house. So they loudly burst into the wrong house. Now, did they do that on purpose? It's, you know, who knows? Who, who knows? knows? Who knows? But it was, it was that sort of loud mistake that allowed Guzman, that, that sort of prompted Guzman to run. So devastating for all concerned and for all the work and the hours and the pouring over all these, you know, communications and, and the developing of the map. But nonetheless, he continued to hold the BlackBerry. Is that right? They didn't get rid of the communication system. He obviously didn't realize that it was essentially the communication system that had tracked him. He believed it to be. No, he didn't. Yeah. Um, in, he didn't. He didn't. He thought that he started to realize that Christian Rodriguez was to blame and that he didn't trust Rodriguez. But he had he didn't realize that the BlackBerry systems themselves were to blame. And so he kept the BlackBerry system with one important sort of um, added security feature. Um He set up this very sophisticated system of relaying calls so that no one could ever tell that he was involved. They called it, ultimately, they called it a mirror system. Um, and, and, and what it was is like, if I wanted to reach you, I would call um, what was more or less a call center. And I would phone in and I would, I would, or I would text in, I would leave a message there. And that proxy, that, that, that pass through, that secondary person would then pass a message on to someone else. And that person would pass the message on to, to, to Guzman's 
private secretary of Guzman himself. So there are always intermediaries involved. And there were supposed to be hard breaks between, you know, like I get a message, I pick up another device, I use that device to pass the message forward, right? And so that there was really no way to trace the message. Um, sometimes people were lazy and they um, uh, used, you know, so if I got an incoming call, I might use the same device and pass it on. And if that happened, it was easier for law enforcement to track it. But yes, this this mirror system, um, you know, became the new means of security um, that they used. Mm-hmm. So all the while, he is he's essentially got this sort of call center that's scrambling these messages between everybody to confuse. He's aware that technology is developing and he needs to to kind of ramp up his own communication security. Um, obviously, though, he also has a bit of an ego and at the same time, he's trying to have a book written about himself and in the background, he has, you know, he's this big ego that is constantly developing and that will ultimately maybe bring him down in the end. Um, the second scene, essentially, within your book is they're kind of back to the beginning. They still have that equipment. They still have the ability to uh, snoop into his communication system. But a new uh, a new agent comes on the scene, a guy called Ray Donovan. And his idea is that to bring down El Chapo, everybody needs to work together and they need to start sharing their intelligence. So That's right. at this point in, in New York, in Chicago, in Miami, in Spain, in China in El Paso, there are teams working on trying to find a location and an opportunity to arrest El Chapo. And he sort of brings them all together. Um, I think in LA, officers are working on a, 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 a thing they call Operation Crackberry, which is again, they're in on his phone again, or they're in on the phones again. So they, he brings them all together in the hopes that they'll finally bring El Chapo down, but uh, there's more drama. Yeah, so the Blackberries are the key to the second um, attempt to capture Guzman. And the the important difference between the first time when the FBI was hacking into the Blackberries and the second time when when the DEA, Homeland Security, and kind of federal prosecutors across the United States do it is that Something, something important happens at BlackBerry itself. Uh, BlackBerry uh, is, is owned by a, a Canadian company. And for many years, the, the servers through which all the communications pass, no matter what country you're in, if you were sending a BlackBerry message to another person, it would be routed through these servers in Canada. And that just kind of caused trouble for U.S. law enforcement because it fell outside the easy jurisdiction of a court-ordered wiretap. You know, you have to get a court in the United States to say, yes, you hack into and surveil um, communications. But if the if the physical data is moving through another country, it's just more difficult to do that. And so in 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 um, in June, uh, in kind of mid 2012, BlackBerry makes a, a crucial decision. They move these proprietary servers out of Canada to Texas and that bringing those servers onto American soil allows U.S. law enforcement now to to um, covertly tap in 
to the network in a way that they could not do before. And so, as you said, in Los Angeles, this Operation Crackberry is the very first time where the DEA availed itself of this new um, technological tool tapping into Blackberries. And what they found was this extensive network of Sinaloa cartel Blackberries. And, you know, nobody knew, I mean, the FBI knew that Guzman had handed out these uh, malware-infected Blackberries to kind of his lawyers and his security chiefs and his girlfriends. But what, what is revealed by Operation Crackberry is that Everyone in the organization is using these things and they're communicating by way of chats. So BlackBerry has a proprietary chatting application called BlackBerry Messenger, BBM. And so, you know, it might be a guy running a warehouse in Honduras, a pilot in, you know, Spain. It could just people all over the place are using these BlackBerries. And um, and so the, the DEA in in in, in, in Los Angeles begins this process of listening in and listening in, and they're just shocked as this thing tentacles out. And they're beginning to find people all over the planet. And it's just so huge. It's this massive case. And it, it kind of leads, that case leads to other cases where, you know, black bear, like different cells of the cartel um, are kind of targeted by different offices uh, prosecutorial offices in the United States. As you mentioned, there's one in Chicago, there's one in San Diego, um, you know, there's one in New York City. And what Ray Donovan realized, Ray Donovan occupied a very interesting job at DEA. He worked for um, what's called the Special Operations Division. And the Special Operations Division sees itself as a kind of hub that brings different, you know, organizations together to kind of share information. And so Donovan quickly realized um, that all of the information and all of the tools to capture Chapo Guzman were already out there, but they were dispersed and they were diffuse. And so he tried to bring everyone uh, together so that, you know, a wiretap in San Diego might you know, shed light on a wiretap in Chicago and, you know, an informant city might, you know, shed light on um, information that they had in Texas. Um, and so that was Donovan's great struggle and really his great success um, was kind of creating a spirit of collaboration amongst um, often competitive U.S. agencies. And he was able to create this kind of coalition of, um, of, of law enforcement agents and offices at, to bring together what was really the, the single biggest wiretap operation, I think, in United States history. You're talking about millions and millions of intercepted pieces of communication that they ultimately were able to, to process. And were they listening? Were they listening in live time, Alan? As well, were they able to hear them? Are they are they actually speaking on these? No, they're never. They're just sending messages. So that's that's the fascinating part. Most of what they were collecting were BlackBerry Messenger texts. So it was it was generally speaking written communications. There would also be photographs. So you know, like if uh, if I want to know that my distributor in Chicago. Um, received a load of cocaine, he would text me a photo from the warehouse of a big pile of bricks of cocaine. And then I would write him back a thumb emoji, you know, or, you know, and then, you know, and then 
it, or they would they would show money, you know, uh, boats, planes. Um, so it was mostly images and text communications. And don't forget, there were two tricks here. This was not a simple process. So they they were all all of the um, uh, cartel operatives. They're not they're not using their real names. You know, they're not like you know, you know. Jose Almeida, here I am in Los Angeles. They have these sort of coded screen names, you know, like they're, they're just wild, you know, uh, uh, Jaguar and uh, uh, Pinto and all these kind of crazy names. Uh, and so there was really no way to know who was who. And they're also speaking a coded language. You know, they would, um, you know, refer, they had they had codes for place names and codes for drugs. And so, and on top of all that, don't forget, they're using this mirror system. So no one is talking directly to Guzman. They're going through this very circuitous route. So it took an immense amount of effort to understand who was speaking, what they were speaking about, and who they were speaking to, who their ultimate, the ultimate target of their investigation was. So that's why when you had like four separate wiretaps and four separate offices and all of these people kind of collaborating said, oh, Pinto, oh, Jaguar, that's the guy who said he was in Honduras last week. Oh my God, I found out that in Honduras, this plane took off. Jaguar must be related to this plane. Let's find the location of this plane. It was this massive puzzle that they put together over the span of, oh man, you know, like a year and a half. It was about a year and a half that they kind of worked on this, this the, the puzzle of this. And, you know, probably by the end of a year, they had cracked what they called the mirror system. They understood how the system worked. And they began in the Special Operations Division headquarters to, to on a conference table, they put together this massive map of the world, basically, with photographs of each of the key players so, you know, in the United States, you had the people who were distributing drugs. And then you had, you know, uh, the, the people who were moving the drugs across the border. And then you had the people who were moving the drugs um, through Mexico. And then on the other side, you had the suppliers in Colombia and Peru and Venezuela. And those teams that brought the drugs from the source countries up through Honduras and Guatemala. And then in the center, you had Guzman and his sort of inner circle. And it was this grueling, grueling process of mapping it out. But that must have been the probably the clearest picture they'd ever had of the Sinaloa cartel, how it operated and why it was so big. I mean, that must have been literally a roadmap into how they were working. Yeah, I mean... At one point, by the end of this process, Donovan says they, they essentially knew like when Chapo was ordering dinner, what he was ordering, which girlfriend he was sending flowers to on which night, because they were they, they read everything that these people were, were, were writing to one another. They knew everything. They knew absolutely everything. And yet, as I was told, that's the easy part in some ways, as hard as that was. That's the easy part. The hard part is then putting together an operation to go in and capture these people. And it wasn't just Guzman, by the way. They, they, they had similarly detailed, a similarly detailed understanding of Guzman's um, sort of most important partner, Mayo Zambada, and other big cartel figures. 
And they were constantly making these ends means decisions about, well, we know this guy is crossing the border with his family uh, into Arizona, you know, to buy Christmas gifts. Do we pick him up? Do we grab him while we can? Or is that going to tip off the cartel that we are in on their communication system and then they'll just throw it all away and start anew? So they were very strategic about when they grabbed people and when they let them uh, stay out in the field. So what did they do? They had broken into his communications network and they obviously, I think they got very close to his, or they at least identified uh, somebody who was right beside him, his bodyguard, who referred they referred to or referred to himself as Condor. They started to track Condor. And um, like, when was the next attempt to, to, to go for, for Guzman? So the, the next real attempt to go for him um, was in uh, 2014. Kind of, it, it, it went from sort of uh, 2013 into early 2014. And um, don't forget, Guzman himself rarely touched these Blackberries. And so, because he, he had what was called a personal secretary, a communications secretary. Like you said, this guy named Condor. There were a couple others over the years, but Condor was the main one that they focused on. And so in order to... Uh, find Guzman, they had to find Condor because Condor was kind of Guzman's body man, always with him. And so they honed in on Condor's communications and his signals, and they finally tracked Guzman. He had come down out of the mountains to his stronghold city, uh, the the city of Culiacan, which is the capital city of Sinaloa State in Mexico. And this was a city that Guzman controlled entirely. He controlled the police, he controlled the politicians, he controlled the populace in some ways, and he had ensconced himself um, in a safe house there that was heavily fortified and the Americans had determined had some sort of tunnel system for you know an escape. And so working with the Mexican military, they launched a raid on that safe house um, in early 2014. Um, and the Mexican Marines went in, they hit a fortified door in the garage, they, they used battering rams, they tried to get in, and in the, this was in the middle of the night, of course, and Guzman was able to flee naked. He jumped out of bed naked in the middle of the night with his girlfriend at his side, Condor, and, and, the, and the maid and cook that always traveled with him and escaped through one of these tunnels. The tunnel was built underneath the bathtub in the bathroom. And the way the tunnel was activated was that you had to take like a paper clip or some sort of, you know, small piece of metal and jam it into the wall socket. And once you jam this piece of metal into the wall socket, it sent an electric charge around the rim of the bathtub and it broke the caulking all atop the lid. The lid pushed up on a hydraulic um, hinge and underneath the the bathtub, was a, a, a ladder going down to the Culiacan sewer system. So Guzman and his entourage flee. They're running. The Marines are behind them in the tunnel, right? They're, it's like it's that close. They're popping manholes all over the place. The entire neighborhood is flooded with helicopters and armed um, troops. They nonetheless managed to get into the river, across the river, and, and Guzman is picked up and um, makes his way uh, out of Culiacan in the in the early morning hours to another town down the coast called Mazatlan, and they shack up there at a beachfront hotel, and the process begins again. They're trying to home in on Condor. 
home in on the communications, and ultimately they find Guzman and um, uh, Condor in, in, in this beachfront hotel in Mazamlan, and he's arrested. Because, of course, he didn't get rid of his BlackBerry again. Did he not learn ever along the way? <laughs> you can't, he can't run an, um, an organization without it. So he's, in some sense, he's tethered to the thing. He needs the thing that is the most dangerous to him in order to survive and keep the business running. Exactly, exactly. Now, he was arrested that time, and he was jailed in... in in Mexico, famously, we all know the scenes of the uh, he's in the cell and, you know, then he disappears one one day. That's, right. That's 2015. I, I think he uh, disappears down the, the shower where they've built another tunnel from a warehouse. Another tunnel. I mean, yep. it's it's beyond Hollywood stuff, uh, Chapo Guzman. It's, 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 it's crazy. It's like, a, it's like a, yeah, no, I, I, I listen, when I was uh, ultimately covering this trial, which kind of started my whole interest in this. Um, it was like, it was like a, like some hallucination, some, some odd, like you would, you'd walk into the courtroom and then suddenly you would enter this kind of like hallucinatory universe where you'd be talking about tunnels and safe houses and like uh, poison and 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 secret air. It was all just, it's nuts. It's just nuts. And all the time, of course, you know the war on drugs that had kicked off in the in the eighties when Reagan declared his war on drugs. There were people dying in their droves all over Mexico because of Guzman and because of the drug wars he was having with various other cartels for control of the border. Obviously, the Mexican border is two thousand miles long. It's a hugely important entry point to the U.S. for cocaine from Colombia. Venezuela and Peru. I mean, you know, all this is going on and it is entertaining as such, all these tunnels and these escapes and this wiretapping, but all the while, so many lives are lost and so much devastation and and so much money is pumped into this unwinnable war and it's tragedy. It's tragic too. Um, Guzman escaped again, right? And and this time he's eventually tracked to essentially to El Tuna, where it all began, where he was born, where in the mountains, and then he he moves again to a, another holiday resort. And I think the phones get him again, do they, Alan? Absolutely, the phones get him every time. <laughs> yeah, uh, this time there's no going back. He he is he is extradited to the States where the trial in Brooklyn. I'm really jealous you covered that trial. I would have absolutely loved to have have covered that trial. I'm sure that was just extraordinary. Um, I know it's a little bit, uh, you know, Hollywood again, but his his wife, Emma Coronel, always fascinates me and, and the type of character she must be. She was obviously the young beauty queen he met. She was 18. He was in his 50s at the time or certainly more than twice her age and they have these twins and she seems like a very hard character were you there in court the day that she um furnished him with the matching burgundy jacket so they could uh stiff it to the mistress <laughs> so they could so they could humiliate the mistress yes that i mean emma cornell is an incredibly interesting character um she was complicit in his drug empire she herself was the daughter of a one of his you know kind of eh, mid-level top aides she had grown up in the drug business um and you know she helped him escape 
she um, was in, in, you know, she was his partner in all of this for sure. And yes, at the trial, one of Guzman's mistresses, who herself was, in, you know, complicit in the drug trade, um, testified against him. And it was very, she was clearly, this young woman was clearly still in love with Guzman and was kind of like pouring out her heart on the witness stand. And I think, you know, Emma betrayed nothing during the trial. She would come in, she would chew gum, she would twirl her hair. Um, you know, she was very poised. She had a lawyer at one side and a publicity person on the other side. Uh, and then uh, the next day, um, the... Uh, Guzman, who had always kind of had a shabby suit on, um, showed up in court wearing a burgundy velvet smoking jacket, something like a Hugh Hefner. And then Emma walked into the courtroom wearing the exact same jacket. And it was just, it was so bizarre that like nobody, we didn't understand what was going on until they brought the mistress out for a second day of testimony. And she's, mind you, you know, she's a criminal. She's in custody. So she's brought into the witness chair wearing her like prison pajamas. And it just became obvious that Emma was sending a signal in a telenovela style to this other woman. You are nothing. You are a peon. You are a felon. You are a criminal. I am a queen. And that is my king. And you will never be like us. It was just, you know, it's like it's like the scene in The Godfather where they leave the horse's head in the guy's bed. There could be no mistaking that this was a horse's head. This was this was Emma Cornell's horse's head saying, like, you know, don't touch my man. Un it was unreal. 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 Now, I started off by asking you, was there still life in the old dog? Um, having heard that story of 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 how he was stalked and how he seemed to have luck and various other things on his side for a long time. Do you think he still believes that he can get out, he can beat this, that he can beat the American system, that he's bigger than the US? I was told that he was going to write. So his, he has lawyers who are filing his appeal. They wrote this exhaustive appeal. And look, in any massive legal case, there are, there are appealable issues, right? And so they brought up, the lawyers brought up some appealable issues. I, I, it's not going anywhere. Uh, there's no judge in the United States that's going to go, oh, geez, you know what? We made a mistake. Let's let Chapo Guzman out. <laughs> but, but at some point I was told that Guzman was, was, was working on his master opus, which was his own appeal of his case. In his own words, like written by hand that they were going to like submit to the judge. And everybody said, no, man, you can't. Don't be crazy. Don't do it. So in his own mind, does he believe that he can beat the system? Maybe, probably. I mean, it's not going to happen, right? Um, he's just crazy enough that, sure, he might believe that. Uh, but, you know, he, he's, he's, he'll, he'll never see, you know, he'll never see, like, the outside of a prison cell for the rest of his life. And he also seems to have, you know, what many people, and probably what you need to get to the very top of the, the drug world, is that extraordinary narcissism, that ego, that, um, you know, thankfully very few kind of have because he was really blooded as a young man. His uncle started out growing heroin in the 50s and 
he came up and 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 you know formed and took a part of of Mexico as his own. Um, but he seemed to he seems to have this belief that he is a king of some sorts or some sort of royalty. He wanted movies made about him. He wanted books written about him. Um, he'd remind you of certain other criminals closer to this part of the world that uh, are are still under investigation. But um, yeah, they seem to they seem to share a lot of them share that massive ego, don't they? And that absolutely. I mean, he's still trying to get his movie made. I I bumped into I have I have bumped into people uh, in the in the film business like in the last six months. Who are like, oh yeah, no, I, I like it crossed my like that proposal crossed my desk. Like he's still out there trying to shop this thing around. It's bonkers. It's bonkers. It's probably illegal. Um, but uh, so it's just it's absolutely crazy. He can probably from his maximum security uh, prison in Colorado. He can probably only send snail mail now anyway. So um, you know he'll be safe. He won't have a BlackBerry there. But he can probably only write and send letters out as his only means of communication, I imagine. Um, it'd yeah, be a long well, time. Yeah, it's, he's very limited. It'd be a long time trying to get a movie off the grounds with that. But listen, Alan, an absolutely fascinating book. I really enjoyed it. Um, oh, I, 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 the, the technicalities of some of it may have eluded me, but I got it essentially what they were doing, even though I didn't quite understand exactly how they did that. But still, uh, listen, fantastic. And, and thanks for your time today. Thank you. From sundayworld.com, this is Crime World, produced by Ian Mullaney. Available online and on all podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, check out our Facebook page, Crime World with Nicola Talent. to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.